Compassion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're new, I'd like to welcome you to Crosswinds. It's great to have you here. As you know, many of you do, that we are working our way through the book of Genesis on both of our campuses. And we're right now focusing on the life of Joseph. We've been looking at certain topics as we've gone through his life. And this morning we're going to look at a really crucial topic for him and a very crucial topic for us. We're going to look at forgiveness. Have you ever struggled to forgive somebody? Have you ever wrestled with what it is like to let something go when somebody has hurt you so deeply and wounded you so bad? If so, this is going to be a very important message for you this morning as we look at forgiveness in the life of Joseph. And before we jump in, because this is a continuation of a story, we need to just set up the backstory. Some of you know this, but for others of you, this is new. Joseph, when he was 17 years old, was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And through God's grace and God's providence, he raised Joseph up through a series of circumstances over roughly 20 years from being a lowly slave to someone who was second in command of Egypt, just under Pharaoh. And just as God sovereignly raised Joseph up, he also sovereignly decreed that there would be a famine on the land. And that famine forced his brothers in the land of Canaan to come to Egypt looking for food. And they actually came and they bowed down before Joseph himself begging for food. And while Joseph recognized them, they didn't recognize him. That was very key. It was crucial. And Joseph wondered, are these still the same scoundrels who would sell their own flesh and blood into slavery? And Joseph began a series of tests with them to reveal the truth in their heart. And we've looked at those in previous weeks. But probably the top test was when Joseph was challenging them to bring Benjamin, the favored son of Jacob, their father, who was left at home, bring Benjamin back. And eventually, after two years, Benjamin did come back. And then Joseph had his great test upon them. And what Joseph did is he framed Benjamin. He put his silver cup in Benjamin's sack of grain. And when the brothers left town, uh, shortly after they left, Joseph sent his steward in pursuit of them. And what I picture must have looked like one of those roadside drug busts, you know, where they have everybody up against the car and they're tearing the car apart to find things. They tear the chariot apart only to find the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. And all the brothers are brought back and they're before Joseph. And then in one of the most amazing and heart-wrenching moments in the entire book of Scripture, Judah, the brother whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery 22 years before this moment, steps forward and offers to be a substitute in Benjamin's place. Take me as the slave and let my brother go. And what we saw last week at that moment was a miniature picture of the gospel happening thousands of years beforehand, where Joseph, 
offered to substitute his life to become a slave and to face certain death in his brother's place. And we left off last week with this amazing realization that thousands of years later, Jesus came. Jesus, who was called the Lion of the tribe of Judah, descendant of that very brother who would offer his blood and his life in our place for our sin, to slave us from slavery to sin and eternal death itself. Amazing, amazing moment. This morning where we pick up the story is Joseph's response to Judah's amazing act of giving, offering to give up his life in his brother's place. We pick up in Genesis chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. So the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. <laughs> Joseph, the one who has always been in control, the one who is second in command, probably the second most powerful man in the ancient world, completely at this moment, loses it. He is wailing. He is bawling. He says, get everyone out of here. They can't see me losing this control except for my brothers. And before this, you realize he has been speaking Egyptian and only speaking to them through an interpreter. And all of a sudden, he flips and he begins speaking Hebrew when he says to them directly in their own native tongue, I am Joseph. Now, interestingly, you would think it would be followed up by and you are such dead meat. But that's not what he follows it up about. He follows it up with, how is dad? Now, what is interesting here is his brother's response. It says, and they were dismayed at his presence. And I've told you before, sometimes I really don't like the English because it doesn't capture the full color of what is going on in the original language behind the scenes here. You look up this word dismayed in the original Hebrew, and it has some really specific descriptions to it. It means terrified to the point of being speechless. That's his brothers at this point. They can't even talk. They are so shocked and scared at this moment. And the story continues. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land for two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you 
to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Twenty-two years they have lived this lie about what happened to Joseph. And in this moment, they realize whether they like it or not, their 22-year lie about what happened to Joseph is up. Now, in this moment, you can picture them feeling we are such dead meat. Things are going to go so bad for us. Joseph already had Simeon in prison for two years. Now the hammer is going to come down. Things are going to fall apart. And if anybody has a right to get revenge and to get even, you'd think it would be Joseph. Because of what they did, he ended up as a slave. Because of what they did, he ultimately ended up for a while in, dun in a dungeon. But Joseph has forgiven his brothers. In fact, as we saw earlier, the focus for him is not about, look, how can I get even with you and how I'm going to punish with you? But the focus in his mind is, how is dad? Now, here's the million-dollar question that we're going to focus on this morning. How come Joseph can forgive them? What is it that he's realized that has enabled him to move on from the great sin and injustice they have done to him? I'll tell you what it is. It's re Joseph realized that it was not his brothers who sent him into Egypt. It was ultimately, in a big picture, God who sent him into Egypt. And God had a good purpose in all of it. In fact, if you look at your notes, I underlined some of these things. This theme comes back four times. Let's look at this. The first time Joseph says this, God sent me before you to preserve life. Secondly, it says this, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And then Joseph says again, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And then it says again, and he, that is God, made me a father to Pharaoh and lord over all his house and ruler over the land of Egypt. Four times Joseph says, you know, it was not you who sent me to Egypt. It was ultimately God who sent me to Egypt and he had a good purpose in doing so. Joseph realized that no matter what was done to him, God's plans for Joseph's life could not be thwarted by his brother's sin. His brother's sin could not destroy God's good purposes, which was to bring Joseph to Egypt to save the lives of many. Here is the point. God is bigger than his brother's sin. God even used his brother's sin to achieve his purpose for Joseph's life. You see that? God 
doesn't necessarily mean that his brothers are not guilty of sin. Of course they're guilty of their sin. But God is bigger than sin. In fact, God can overrule what his brothers intended for evil and turn it around and use it so as part of God achieving his very purpose for Joseph's life. So Joseph doesn't have to get revenge for his brothers. Joseph doesn't sit there and say, because of what you did, you ruined my life. Because here's the point. His brother's sin could not ruin God's purpose for his life. Do you see that? God was bigger than his sin. Now this is not just something we see in the life of Joseph. It is something we see throughout Scripture. In fact, we see it in the life of Jesus, don't we? God's purpose was to send his own son to die in our place for our sin. And when Jesus was here on earth, the Jews chose to sin against him and falsely accuse him. And the Romans conspired together. And together they sinned against him. And they crucified Jesus, our Lord and Savior. But did their sin thwart God's purpose for Jesus? Absolutely not. God incorporated it and used it actually as part of achieving God's purposes for Jesus. Do you see that? Very interesting concept. Now, this is where it gets so incredibly cool. It's not just true of Joseph. It's not just true of Jesus. But it's true of your life and mine as well, as sons and daughters of God. Will people sin against us? Yes. Will they do some terribly painful things to us? Of course. But here is what you need to understand and what we all need to remember. Their sin cannot destroy God's purpose for our life. God is bigger than sin. He can actually take what they intended for evil, incorporate it, and use it as part of achieving His very purpose for our life. Now, this is so cool because when it comes to forgiving people, doesn't that help? You don't sit there and say, you know what, because of what you did to me, my whole life has been ruined. It's not true. Because of what they did to you, was there great pain in your life? Yes. Was there suffering? Yes. But could it destroy what God intended to do through you and with you? Absolutely not. God's sovereignty and purposes are bigger than sin that has ever done against us. Now, this is incredibly helpful when it comes to forgiving. This is incredibly helpful when you're wrestling with the issue of revenge and getting even. Now, because this issue of forgiving and revenge is such a big deal for every single one of us in our life, I was originally going to continue to jump into the next section, which, by the way, is a huge section to cover. And since this is a communion Sunday, and I think forgiveness is such a big deal, what I decided to do this week is just pause, and I want to stop and look at the whole issue of forgiveness, sort of a little topical section here in the middle. And I want to look at forgiveness from two angles. 
because forgiveness is so often mis misunderstood. I want to look at for what forgiveness is not, and then I want to look at what forgiveness actually is from a biblical standpoint. So if you have your outlines, uh, follow along and flip to the second page. We're going to begin with this. What does biblical forgiveness not look like? And here's the first thing. Biblical forgiveness is not overlooking a minor offense. Now, <coughs> the reason I say this is I sometimes see people use this term forgiveness for really minor things. They say, well, well I can forgive you. And by using it that way, I think that dumbs down the real significance of what forgiveness is. You're really just overlooking a minor offense. I'll give you an example. This has happened to me sometimes. Maybe it's happened to you. I love kids. I love like two, three-year-old little kids. You can see me. I love to give them hugs. I love to play with them. But this sometimes happens. You'll pick up like a two- or three-year-old kid, and you have all the best intentions. You pick them up, and they just whack you one. This ever happened? No. Sometimes it's unintentional because they have those heads that are like wrecking balls, and they're doing this all around and whack right in the nose, and you're like, oh, how could you do that? And then sometimes, you guys know this is true, it's not unintentional. You pick up the kid, and I think they have been schooled on watching too much WWF with their daddy because they just start, you know, this kind of thing. You know, punching you in the nose and eye jabbing and all this kind of stuff. And the first thing that goes through your head is, you little twit. And you just want to like, I want to teach you a lesson right now that your parents should have long ago. But do you do that? Do you whack a two or three-year-old because they hit you in the face? No. You put them down, maybe get away from them but you overlook it because, number one, if you hit them, you're going to jail. <laughs> uh, number two, they're two or three years old. Come on, guys. Just overlook the offense. It's not a big deal. Suck it up. Kids will be kids. Don't sit there and say, well, I'm going to forgive them. Just overlook it. It's not a big deal. This is not just true of kids, but if you think about this, this goes as, just as well for teenagers, and this also fits with adults. For instance, do you guys remember what it was like when you were in high school? You have such a huge discrepancy between the freshmen and the seniors. You have the 100-pound freshman guys who are covered in zits, and then you have the 200-pound senior guys who are all ripped in muscles, and some of them have a beard down to here. And what I've discovered is you sometimes these freshman guys, I don't know if it's a hormone imbalance in their brain or what goes on, they can get really annoying. And they can do some things that are really irritable. And sometimes they'll irritate those senior guys. And the senior guys sometimes will sit there and go, you know what, you will fit really well into a locker. And I, you know, you get these guys who are seniors, they have the body of an adult, but really the mind is not clicking that they should be acting like an adult. Because they say, nobody is going to offend me. No little freshman is going to walk on me. I am going to get even with you big time. In reality, that doesn't show a senior's manliness, does it? It shows a senior's immaturity. It shows the fact that a man who, or a young man who's in a man's body hasn't learned that he just needs to overlook 
a minor offense and not make a big deal out of something that really is not a big deal to be made over. This happens with adults. This has happened to me. I don't know if this has happened to you, but did you ever help out at a school function or help out at a church function? And then when the program comes out, they print all the names of the people who help in it. And you get to that and you start looking through all those names. And guess whose name is missing? Your name. And the names of people who are present are people who hardly helped at all. And what happens? you start to get a little irritated and a little annoyed. And what do you want to do? The friend who's sitting next to you, I can't believe it. They didn't even put my name in there. I was there almost every night for the production. They just completely forgot about me. And we start this thing, right? And the reality is, what should we do? Uh, Should we go to the person who printed the program and like complain big time? You just be like, you know what? It's not a big deal. It's just the program. I was trying to donate my time anyway. Any credit I get is not a big deal. Just overlook the minor offense. It's not that big of a deal. Let me put it this to you this way. The truth is, how many times have each of us forgotten to thank somebody who deserves to be thanked? How many times have we inadvertently offended somebody? or hurt somebody. In those moments, the people we love are the ones who come up to us after we realize we've offended them and they say, hey, it's, it's not a big deal. Don't even worry about it. I didn't even think twice about it. It's like water off a duck's back. We love that. But what we don't like is when the person says, you know, you're right. Next time, my name better be in that program. I think I can find it in me to forgive you. And you're like, you know, just overlook it. I was trying to help. The scriptures say this. Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it's to his glory to simply overlook an offense. What does biblical forgiveness not look like? Biblical forgiveness is not overlooking a minor offense. Number two, biblical forgiveness does not mean necessarily forgetting what happened. I've heard this said before. If you forgive someone, you have to forget what they've done to you to hurt you. Because God forgives and forgets. So you have to just completely pretend like it never happened and wipe it out of your memory banks. And the problem is when people have really hurt you, they're like, I can't forget. It's too big of a deal. It's like a monstrous boulder in my life. I just have to keep working around it. And this usually comes from a misunderstanding of Jeremiah 31, 34, where it says this, And I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. And people will say, well, they remember the sins no more. Okay, so what are we supposed to do? Here's the deal. When it says that God doesn't remember our sins, that doesn't mean that God has mental amnesia. Because if he did, there's a whole lot of stuff about your life and my life that once we've asked God to forgive us, that he would forget about and not know about. But God is completely cognizant of our sin, and he hasn't necessarily forgotten our sin. But what does it mean when God forgets something or remembers something or doesn't choose to remember it? It means this, 
God doesn't constantly bring it to mind. He doesn't constantly turn his attention or wrath to something. So when we forgive somebody, this is what it means. It means we choose to not constantly think about it. We choose to let it go. We choose to stop focusing on it. We turn our energy and our thoughts away from the wound that has been done to us. Number three, biblical forgiveness does not necessarily mean that people must escape the consequences of what's been done to them. And sometimes people will say this, if you forgive me, then there should be no consequences for what has been done against me. Forgiveness and consequences are two different pieces. Let me think of it this way. Does God forgive us? Are there still consequences for our sin even after God forgives us? Yes. Remember we looked at David and Bathsheba? Uh, David slept with Uriah, murdered Uriah, and committed adultery with Bathsheba. When was he ultimately forgiven of his sin by God? Yes. But there were there, there are still consequences from his sin? That child died that was conceived through their illicit union. In fact, if you look at the broad picture of 2 Samuel, you find that that issue with David and with Bathsheba in the center of his life was a pivotal moment because his life was going uphill until that point when he committed adultery and murder, and then his life began to slowly teeter downhill as consequences that all came from that sin. So, when we forgive somebody doesn't mean that consequences for the sin they have done against us necessarily go away. Uh, let me put it this way. You can forgive somebody, but that doesn't mean you won't fail to call the police. You can forgive somebody, but a restraining order may still be necessary. You can forgive somebody, but that doesn't mean they get to go back working with children because they haven't demonstrated themselves safe with children. You can forgive somebody, but it doesn't mean they get a credit card back if they haven't proven faithful with money. You can forgive somebody, but it doesn't mean they get an open Internet connection if they haven't proven faithful with the Internet. There are still consequences that go with sin. I'll give you another one. Biblical forgiveness does not necessarily mean immediate restoration of trust. Usually what happens is we start out with a very good relationship with somebody, and there's a high level of trust between us. And then what happens is they sin against us, and it go, we go from a positive trust between the two of us to a negative trust. You'd say, well, I will not trust them with anything at all because they have sinned against me, because they have hurt me. They are totally untrustworthy. Now, some people think that when you forgive somebody, you go from a negative trust right back to the same position of full positive trust that you had before. That's not necessarily true. When you forgive somebody, you go from a negative position of trust to a neutral position of trust. 
you allow people to continue to earn back more trust again. Because sometimes when people have um, sinned against you, the trust that they have violated is so serious that you can't just put them right back to that same position of full trust again. You put them back to a neutral position and you allow them to earn more trust back over time because that's just the way relationships work. I'll give you another one. Biblical forgiveness does not necessarily mean letting someone repeatedly hurt you. And I speak from this sort of in a more of a generic philosophical way because I haven't seen this happen a lot as I've been a pastor, but I have seen it happen. And this is sometimes a situation where you have a husband and wife and the husband is abusive. And he's abusive towards his wife. And she's the Christian and she says, well, I've forgiven him. So I have to stay in that relationship. And then a week or a month later, he goes right back to abusing her and hitting her and striking her. And oh, I, I've forgiven him. Forgiving somebody doesn't necessarily mean you have to stay in that kind of relationship. You mean to put, it doesn't necessarily mean divorce, but it means you need to put safeguards and you have to do some kind of things to, to bring healing in that kind of brokenness. Let me flip to the other side. What does biblical forgiveness look like? Biblical forgiveness is refusing to seek revenge or to be consumed by past injuries. Forgiveness means a conscious decision not to get even. Forgiveness means that you made a conscious decision to not let your mind be consumed by the past injustice. Forgiveness means you've made a decision that you will not slander somebody or take the opportunity to speak negatively about them behind their back to other people because you have forgiven them. Forgiveness means that you have made a conscious decision not to pursue revenge and not to take an opportunity for payback when it comes around. These are all important pieces of what it means to forgive. Forgiveness means that we try to treat somebody like Jesus Christ has treated us. We forgive them like we have been forgiven. Let me give you another great verse on this subject from Romans chapter 12, 17 through 21. It says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let me let you look at a couple points here. Forgiveness is choosing, remember it's a choice, to not seek revenge. As it says here, re, not repaying evil for evil. 
forgiveness is doing what is honorable in the sight of all, not necessarily what you think is deserved to have them suffer. It's doing what is honorable. Number two, forgiveness is doing everything we can to live at peace with everyone. Now let me just point this out. I like the fact this recognizes that you are not necessarily able to live at peace with everyone. Because some people will make a choice that they do not want to live at peace with you. But as far as is possible with you, you have done everything possible to live at peace with them. You've chosen to pursue kindness towards them. You've chosen to pursue peace with them. Not passively hope there may be peace, but you have gone out of your way to actively pursue peace. I'll tell you this illustration. If you've been around for a while, you've heard this one from me before, but it's on a short week when you're pretty sick. It's what comes back to mind, so I'll tell it to you again. Some of you know that there was a time I had this one individual that for some reason just did not like me at, at all. This is, oh, over a decade ago. Previous church, previous ministry, just really was vindictive. And I remember, what am I supposed to do about this? God, how do I solve this? What am I supposed to do? And it was Christmas time. And I was reading through my quiet time and praying through this and looking at verses that kept coming up to, you know, live at peace with your enemies, do good to those who want to hurt you. And, I, and the Lord convicted me, you know what, it's Christmas time, I need to get this guy some Christmas cookies. I need to give him a tin worth. So to tell you what I did, I, I went to Walmart, I'll just confess, and I bought the cookies from Walmart put him in a tin from the basement and went to his house and said, hey, it's Christmas. I just want you to know we have some cookies for you. I hope you have a great Christmas season and left and went from there. Now, some of you are like, how heartless of you. And it's the ladies who are saying this right now. Why did you go to Walmart and buy cookies? No wonder he's angry at you. Well, and just to let you know, I didn't want him accusing my wife of having bad cooking. So, you know, it's like, you can't say you got sick from the cookies because they came from Walmart. But here's the thing. It's actively choosing to pursue peace, going out of our way to try and bridge that gap with people, not just hoping that it goes away. Number, or, or letter C, forgiveness is leaving revenge in God's hands. Oftentimes, we have a real problem with this. Because everything inside of us says, when somebody has hurt me, I want to get even, and I need to get even. Because I feel like I owe them one. But you know what, the way this works? As soon as we get even and we'll feel better, what do they feel like? That it's uneven. And they owe us one. And so then they strike back. And then what do we feel like? Well, you know, I owe them one. I have to get even. And we strike back. And a, and a vicious circle starts of constant payback. Well, the Scriptures tell us that we leave revenge in God's hands. 
We do everything we can to live at peace with those who have hurt us, going out of our way. And here's what some of you will say. Pastor, I just struggle with this. Leave revenge in God's hands? I mean, like, it feels like they deserve to be punished. And if that is what comes to mind, you're sort of missing the entire story of Joseph. Isn't God large and in charge of history? Isn't he large and in charge of this world? Isn't God fully capable of taking care of revenge against those who hurt you? Isn't God the one who's the judge before whom we will all stand? He can take care of it. And here's the deal. If you choose to get your own revenge against those who have hurt you, it's really hard to lead them to Jesus after that, isn't it? But ultimately, what's even better than revenge is if God takes that person's heart who has hurt you and through the grace of the Holy Spirit breaks their heart down and they go from being an enemy to a brother or sister in Christ. And by pursuing revenge, it really gets hard to do that. Number two, biblical forgiveness is always a choice. It's not necessarily a feeling. We have to lead with our head on this rather than our heart. Let me mention this. Forgiveness is a conscious decision not to choose revenge. It's a conscious decision to do our enemy good. It's a conscious decision to let the wound go. It's a conscious decision to leave it at the foot of the cross and to trust God. Will your feelings follow? And will you feel like they become more of an, a friend instead of an enemy? Maybe. Maybe not. It's a conscious decision. And lastly, I'm going to go right back to where we started with Joseph, where this is so important for us to land. Biblical forgiveness is willing to let go of a hurt because we know that no matter what was done to us, it cannot frustrate God's plans for us. Let me say that again. Biblical forgiveness is willing to let go of a hurt because we know that no matter what was done to us, it cannot frustrate God's plans for us. Somebody may sin against us, but it doesn't frustrate God's plans. Oh, it may end up being that we end up in slavery. We end up in a jail we didn't deserve. It may end up we lose a job that we don't feel we should have lost. But God will not let someone sin against us frustrate His plans. Doesn't this help give us the ability to forgive? Doesn't this help let go of that desire for revenge? Because nobody can actually ruin God's plans for your life. Will the sin against you hurt? Yes, but God is always bigger than the sin. And God will achieve the purpose He has for our life in spite of what was done against us. Now, I know this morning that everyone here has somebody in mind who has done something deep. Maybe, maybe some people don't. Maybe they're really young. But if you've lived a while, 
Each of us have people that have hurt us deeply. And the, what they have done to us has really made some hard corners and turns in our life that are painful. But let me encourage you with this. Leave it at the cross. Give it to Jesus. Do good. Don't seek revenge. And realize that their sin cannot frustrate God's plans, His good plans for your life. Let's this has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.